When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got another outstanding guest for y'all today. And I know I say that at the opening of every episode, and I mean it at the opening of every episode, but I've got another great member of the Covey family uh, today, Mr. Curtis Bateman. Curtis, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's this is going to be a great conversation. As we talked before, I've had a, a few different folks on here, and it has just been a fantastic conversation each time. And I have no doubt uh, given the topic we're going to talk about today, that is going to be just as amazing. But listeners, what I want you to know about Curtis here before we get into that conversation is uh, he is Franklin Covey's Vice President of International Direct Offices. With over 25 years of experience in the training industry, Curtis is an international recognized presenter, content developer, change consultant, business leader, and coach. His passion for enabling organizations at change resulted in co-creation of transformative industry-leading solutions, including Change Element, Leaders at Change, Managing Millennials, Millennials at Work, and the Change Practitioner. Formerly the president and CEO at Red Tree Leadership, Curtis managed the world-class brand Who Moved My Cheese. And I know some of my listeners are a little bit familiar with the book, Who Moved My Cheese? And he created a practical approach to help individuals and leaders succeed with an ever-complex world of change in the workplace. Curtis joined Franklin Covey as a senior change consultant and co-practice leader. In 2016, Curtis became managing director of the UK and Ireland. In 2018, he was asked to assume additional management responsibilities of Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. And then in 2019, he was doing such a good job that he took on the additional responsibilities for China, Japan, and Australia. So listeners, I know that was a long bio, and you know I try to trim those down a little bit unless there is just a lot there that I want you to get to really emphasize how outstanding a guest is. And it's with all of that understanding that I'm super excited to hear how you answer that first question, Curtis, where I start off all of my guests. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? 
Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Earl. It is great to be on with you today. I've been looking forward to talking about this question because it's such an important one to me, and I spend a lot of a lot of personal uh, reflection time thinking about this very topic. Um, I guess my entry point into the answer starts with the word responsible, and I've always thought about as a leader what are my responsibilities? To whom am I responsible? And I've long believed there are four commitments that as a leader, I make being a responsible leader. So I'll tell you what those four are and maybe talk a little bit about each one of them. Um, The first commitment or responsibility that I feel like I have is to myself, to my values, to the type of leader I want to be, to the types of outcomes I really hope to create and deliver as a leader. The second area of responsibility where I feel like I make a commitment as a leader is to those that I lead, to their success, their growth, uh, to helping them find their way forward in their career and to becoming the the next best version of themselves in in their journey and their progress. I then feel like I really have a commitment to those outside the organization. That might be clients, community, Um, And even family members or significant others of the employees themselves, just just a real sense of responsibility to that group of people to make sure that the work we do or the impact we have on them as an organization is just positive. Of course, the fourth one, which is probably the easiest one just to identify, and that is I have a responsibility as a leader to the organization, to their values, to the results. And... um, this one, you know, it's always great when those line up, when, when my personal values and the organization values are aligned. And that's what you look for when you look for an opportunity. And, and embedded in those four leadership commitments um, that I feel like I make as a leader and that I believe most of us as leaders make um, are all those things where we have um, this growing sense of responsibility in society to, to employees' mental health, to equity, to inclusion, to diversity, to diverse thought, to diverse lived experience, background, education, gender, race, you know, passions, interests, whatever it might be, Um, a commitment to data privacy, right? The world we live in, there's an increasing interest in that, especially since I work in Europe so much, Um, to the environment, to the community. And, you know, the list goes on and on of all those places where we would hope responsible leaders pay attention. And for me, I look to address all of those areas of responsibility in those four commitments. So I'll I'll start with the organization. You know, at Franklin Covey, one of the things that really drives um, our culture are the four values that we have. And, And I love it because for me, they embody so much of this responsible leadership. Our first value is we believe and value the whole person. And that's so meaningful to me because there's the employee that shows up at work and then there's the other substantial portion of their life, their responsibility as a sibling, a spouse, a significant other, a partner, a parent, um, a child, and any places where they might volunteer and share their passion, be that in the community or a religious organization or some other type of charity where they serve. We want to recognize and acknowledge that all of that collectively represents their lived experience. 
So for me, that value really encompasses trying to appreciate all the diversity that shows up in the workplace. Um, the, the second value we have is around this idea of trying to live all the great things we teach, which is wild aspiration and really challenging. But, you know, Franklin Covey focuses on helping leaders be their very best self, helping individuals become their very best self and helping organizations thrive and grow. And so as we do that, you know, it crosses all four of those commitments for me. Um, our fourth, our third value is around client impact, which of course ties directly to what I feel like is my third commitment outside the organization. And that is making sure the work we do is really brilliant for clients. And that includes, you know, their concern about the environment, making sure that we're environmentally friendly, making sure that we're protecting and caring for the data of their employees, all of those things that really matter. And then our last value is this idea of growth, which probably has the strongest connection for me to my personal values. And that is I have this desperate desire as a leader to make sure everyone who enters my stewardship is better three months, six months, 12 months, five years from now than they were when we started our journey together. So for me, Earl, it all comes back into those four commitments, which I view as a personal responsibility as a leader, commitment to myself, to those I lead, to those outside the organization, and to the organization for the stewardships I have, for the people I lead, and for the results that I'm expected to get. Mm. Curtis, I, I love I love everything that you just said there because, you know, I love that holistic view, that holistic approach to, you know, the entirety of of the human experience of of those that we lead and and those that uh, the way I like to put it, those that choose to follow us, because that's the way I always like to describe leadership. Right? Is it's it's not something that. Like you can't go to somebody else in, in the organization and say, you are leading this person, yeah. right? That person has to choose th- someone as their leader. But you have to, you really have to treat that whole person, not just the eight hours a day or the 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day that they're inside the, the four walls of, of the office. And I love the fact that you included the family, you included the, the organizations that matter to them, uh, the, the social causes, because all of that, right. The, they, they call that intersectionality, right? Nobody yep. is just one thing. Everybody is made up of multiple components, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, lived experiences, religions. Everything is what somebody is. And it doesn't matter how much we look alike, doesn't matter how much we speak alike, we're all still very different and diverse from one another. Um, and, and it's just, uh, I, so I, I love that answer. I guess that's, that's what I'm getting at here is I love that answer because I don't run into a lot of, of leaders that really think at that level, you know, th- they may get one piece of it or they may get two pieces of it, but to really think that kind of, uh, I'll go a little bit John Maxwell-y here, but to think 363, yeah, if yeah. I can get trip over my tongue, 360 <laughs> degree leadership, right? That was, that was beautiful. I love what you said. Yeah. And I think, you know, employees are expecting this of leaders, which sets a really high bar for leaders. 
but they deserve it. They're, they're committing such a large portion of their day, their time, their life in the cause of what we're jointly pursuing at the company that I think there's an element of respect as a leader to acknowledge everything that goes on and exists in their life and try and help them thrive and grow as, as our career paths intersect for a period of time. Yeah. Well, and, and so I want to get to, uh, cause I love what you just said there. Cause I think it is, is a great tie in to the, the book change, how to turn uncertainty into opportunity. Um, because I've, I've had a guest on here a couple of times in the past, uh, Anthony Casablanca. And uh, first of all, I always say I love his name. He's got a, one of the best <laughs> names I've ever uh, had on the show. But his area, he really focuses on on grief leadership. Hmm. Um, and he does have a background in, in death, he, he, mortuary services, those sorts of things. But he said he really came to a, uh, a, an epiphany when he realized that it's not just about, you know, when there's a loss of life. Uh, grief happens in a lot of places. And one of the places where it happens is change in an organization. Yep. And it is because of a lot of these things that you talk about. We CEOs, uh, decision makers, they make this decision on paper in a bubble with numbers. And it looks good to close this plant or move this operations from this city uh, across the country to this city. And they don't think about uh, uprooting families. Don't don't think about you know the social clubs, the uh, the hobbies, the the church connections. They don't think about those pieces and the amount of grief that that causes to break those connections. And that is a big piece of why change is such a hard thing for a lot of of people in an organization to embrace. It's not that they don't like the change. They don't like the grief and the trauma and the turmoil that it creates in their life outside of the organization. So yeah. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on, on that thought process. Well, there's, there's no doubt that loss experiences, be they, you know, personal loss from death or relationships that get severed or these types of work changes you're talking about, that they lead through a loss cycle. And I mean, there are other types of changes that get initiated, but so many do go through this loss cycle. And unfortunately, you know, leaders sometimes miss the fact that it's going to create that much impact. That doesn't always make the decision easier, right? But when it does initiate that, there are some leadership things we would hope to help leaders do better so they can lead their people through that process. But if I stick with the personal impact that you're talking about, you know, the change model in our, in, in our book and in all of the work Franklin Covey does around change focuses on the impact on results. Right? If you think about a horizontal axis, results being higher as you go up, lower as you go down, sorry, on a vertical axis. Um, uh, then what you see is when a change is introduced, the results or the outcomes go down because of that sensation of loss. And it leaves people in a state of just uncertainty. And until they can get clarity around, okay, what is this change? Why in the world is it happening? And most importantly, to your point, what is the impact on me? Until they get clear on that, organizational change really is on hold until people can sift through, get the answers to that information, and then be positioned to make a decision around what they're going to do with it. 
So I think you're right on, right? That's that's not not uncommon, and it's really one of the primary primary drivers where people get stuck and really struggle with change. It's why in some data we've we've captured over about a ten year period of time, eighty eight percent of people think change in an organization is going to lead to something worse for them. And yeah. 72% think the change is going to lead to something worse for the organization because it feels like such a loss and such a disruption to their circumstance. And historically it has been that bad. So collectively it just leads to those really negative starting places when we, when we introduce change in the workplace. Well, yeah. I mean, it goes the whole thing, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, right? Uh, there, there's at least some truth to them uh, that doesn't yep. make them always true. And, and change has had a lot of negative stereotypes attached to it. But um, I just want to repeat this again for listeners, because uh, I, I think I think you because uh, and, uh, and I've used this quote on here several times before. And it still goes unattributed. I don't know. Maybe you know who said it because being immersed in the world of change the way you are. But the quote is, uh, change is changing faster than change has ever changed before. Um, But it's true. I think it's it's, totally true. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's becoming more and more true every single day. Um, But I think books like like yours um, change how to turn uncertainty into opportunity uh, provide leaders and and listeners to shows like mine with a lot of great insight and a lot of great opportunity on how to better manage change and and lead their teams through change. So uh, I'm telling you right now, listeners, grab a copy of Change: How to Turn Uncertainty into Opportunity, and we're going to talk about that a, a, a bit through the rest of this conversation here. Um, but one of the things, that, and we talked about this in the pre-show workup here, one of the things I really love about this book, because my listeners know I love a good story, you all come out of the gate swinging. You've got uh, three co-authors here, right? I think I counted that right. Three yeah, three authors. co-authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you all come out of the gate swinging with a parable, uh, Who Rocked the Boat? So can you give us a quick kind of synopsis of the Who Rocked the Boat story and, and get people sucked in to want to go read more and find out the whole story? Yeah, of course I can. I probably should just give a, an, an acknowledgement of gratitude for the, you mentioned it in my bio, that I worked with Spencer Johnson, who wrote Who Moved My Cheese. For 10 years, I worked with him. and um, I don't think I would have ever had the idea to write a parable and include it in the book without that 10 years of tutoring under him. So he's, he's passed on, but just, just a deep gratitude to him for that. Gave me the courage to do something that Franklin Covey hasn't done before, and that's include a parable in the book. So um, one of the things I realized as I spent years working with organizations and individuals with whom we made cheese is just how powerful the dialogue was when you shared a story and allowed people the space to go make discoveries on their own. And that's what we endeavored to do as I, as I worked and we, we worked away on Who Rocked the Boat. So this is a story... Um, of a captain and a ship's crew. And they're on a river. It's called the River Routine. And they're they're just tasked with delivering the goods on their boat to port. And as they are on the River Routine, they're trying to get to their destination a little faster. They take a turn and they end up on a river where there's a waterfall. And of course, once you get into the current on a, on a boat like that, they, there's no going back. So they go over the waterfall 
And the story then talks about the whole journey, the leader's journey, the crew's journey of dealing with that massive amount of unexpected disruption and how they work through it and what they learn together and where it leads them. And it will give readers a real sense. We, I, I know this because we've read the book in test groups and I've talked to people about it. It will give readers this discovery of a change journey and it will allow them to talk about it in a really interesting way. They'll see that it matches their lived experience. And the, one of the nice things with the parable is it gives people a way to talk about frustrating, emotionally charged, challenging topics using language from the story that's less threatening and less accusatory. So it's a really, really fun way to start the book. It, I think it engages readers right away. It leaves lots of white space for people to go have conversations around how does it line up with their own experience and what can they learn from it so that change is less threatening and they can find ways to be far more successful. And as the cover says, you know, turn the uncertainty of change into an opportunity for them. Yeah. No, I, it, it, it's, it, again, it is a great story and, and uh, listeners, uh, I highly recommend you get the book, if nothing else for, for the parable. And, but one of the things I love about it that is very genius is you, you talk about these five common reactions to change um, and you use those as characters in the story. Yep. Um, and, and those five common reactions. And, and I think that most of us will, will really kind of identify with these, those reactions, move, minimize, wait, resist, quit slash quits. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious cause I know that there's probably a ton of different reactions, but why did you settle on those five specific reactions? I love this question. Um, it reminds me when I first started doing this work, I actually only had four reactions. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and um, the four came from observing, you know, we created some activities in different organizations of all shapes and sizes to, to observe behavior. And so it was from observed behavior uh, that we saw in organizations as they were going through change. And then we took those behaviors, we kept testing them. And the one that I had left out um, with, with the original um, version of the change content was quit. And I was giving a keynote one time and there were a few thousand people in the room and I did an activity just to kind of prove a point and five people walked out and never came back. And, and I thought, oh my goodness, what just happened? And then I realized, oh, what happened is not about me or my ego or my delivery. What just happened is this is a response to change that happens all the time. And then as I gave it a lot more thought and work, we realized that some people choose to quit and leave and other people choose to quit and stay. The whole quiet quitting we've been talking about. So they came through trial and error, through testing, through observation, through a couple of assessments we built trying to make sure that we triangulated in on the most common reactions. I mean, Earl, you and I could probably come up with five other reactions right now, right? There might be temper tantrum. There might, there might be lots of others, but these seem to be the most common and they show up over and over and over again. But what they are, are reactions. They're not personality types. They're not judgments. They're just saying, hey, as a change is introduced, these reactions surface because of the emotion connected to the change. And as we watch those reactions play out, there's strengths 
and there are weaknesses to each of them. And as an individual, it begs the question, am I reacting the way I would think is the very best in this circumstance rather than my default reaction? And as a leader, hopefully it prompts leaders to look at people's reactions and not judge them, but to gain a little insight into where they might be on their personal journey so a leader knows how to coach and help them move along and make progress with the change. And these five reactions, they just work brilliantly. I've, I've used them in cultures in the Middle East, in Asia, in, in Latin America, in Europe, and the US, and the reactions just hold so consistently true. And they lead to this really nice, healthy dialogue around why is that the case? What are the strengths of that reaction? Where can we help people grow and get better and make progress? So collectively, we can move faster through the changes we're experiencing. Mm. I like it. Makes sense. I mean, yeah, you're right. You, there, there's a myriad of, of, of reactions and emotions and, and, and all that. And, and, you know, you gotta, you gotta draw the line somewhere. So uh, I like, I like what you settled on. Cause I think it covers, uh, I think you did a good job at covering probably the widest range of, of possibilities yeah. there. Yeah. Um, well, Curtis, I think right now would be a really good time. Let's take our our mid uh, our, our mid session break here, pay some bills, let some commercials play, and uh, when we come back, um, want to dive into the change model a little bit. How does that sound? Sounds fun. All right, so we're going to go ahead and roll those commercials, folks. We'll be back on the other side with Curtis Bateman, and we're going to get into uh, to his thoughts on on their change model. Right, listeners, welcome back again. We were are with uh, Curtis Bateman uh, talking about the new book "Change: How to Turn Uncertainty into Opportunity." Um, and as promised, uh, you all have laid out um, a, your ideas behind a change model. I know my listeners, uh, you know, maybe are familiar with Cotter's Eight Steps, and uh, the name just went out of my my head. The the simple one. What is it? Uh, uh, thaw, change, freeze. Uh, but, but how does, you know, how does your change model kind of differ from those? What sets it apart? Yeah. Um, th- there's a, there's a underlying premise, which is the starting point that I think really sets it apart. There, there, there are so many other great works and ideas and schools of thought on change and <clears throat> wouldn't want to diminish any of those. What I would say is, Hopefully our school of thought is additive and works in conjunction with or on top of some of these others. So the basic premise under our model is that organizations hire talented, capable people. And that those capable people um, need to be engaged for a change in an organization to be successful. So that led us to the conclusion that change is really a people endeavor. There are lots of change models or methodologies that focus on the process or the workflow. And of course, those are critical in a change. But if you do those uh, while ignoring or, or overlooking or diminishing the role of people in the change process, what you end up doing is pushing people through, driving them through, forcing them through, working them through the change. And I think it ignores their genius. 
when you think these people are smart, they're capable, they want to be here. What if we engage them in the change and allow their genius to help make the change a success? And that's what we tried to do. So we built this, this framework called the change model. And it, it has a, it's a two-axis model. It plots outcomes or results against time. Time is horizontal. And it starts with the basic assumption that we're in a, in a steady state or a resting state, which we call the zone of status quo, producing a level of outcome or result that we're, that we're comfortable with. We know what to expect. We show up every day. It feels very um, business as usual. And then, then there's that moment where a change is introduced. And instead of maintaining a status quo level of results, there's this impact on results. They might be financial result, results. They might be employee engagement. They might be emotional bank account. They might be market penetration or customer satisfaction. In any number of types of results that we would expect in an organization. And those results continue to decrease or diminish until we help everybody, including leaders, really get clarity on what's changing, why is it changing, and what does it mean to me? And then we hit that magic point in the bottom of this curve where people choose to opt in or they choose to opt out. But most of the time they engage and then they start working through implementing the change which requires creativity and trying new things, making mistakes, setbacks. And this is the space where most changes fail, Earl, because they, they reach a point where it gets hard, it's difficult. And about 70% of change initiatives really fail to meet their intended outcome. And this is the place in the change process where they do. But there's very specific things that leaders and individuals can do to, to move through that space. And then as results tend to rise and come back to their pre-change level, then the real opportunity emerges and it says, through all the change we've been experiencing, what have we learned? And if we got really curious and creative, what, what more could we accomplish because of the change? And the more we can accomplish, the higher those results go as a result of the change and the innovation. And our hope is that that area above the status quo at the end of the change process becomes a larger area than that dip we've gone through because then it produces a really tangible return on investment for making the change. So we call that the change curve. It's really a people-focused and leader-focused process without any effort to diminish or ignore that process is part of the part of the journey that goes on. And Again, as I was looking through the book and, and following along on, on the diagrams there, and again, uh, listeners, you know I, I'm a big, big sucker uh, for design and layout, and I've got to give you all a lot of credit because I love the diagrams. I love the way the book is laid out, um, but but I really do love the diagrams of this change model and kind of how... Uh, a, you did a masterful job of verbally walking people through it uh, just now. But in the book, y'all do a fantastic job of visually walking people through uh, this process. And what I love about it, again, is is as you put it, it, it involves everyone. And it, it makes everybody feel like they are a part of it. And as we discussed before, I think that is the one piece where 
uh, a lot of change initiatives fall off the rails is, mm-hmm. you know, not conveying the, the why. Why is this change important? But not getting everybody involved in the change. Because, uh, you know, I'm sure that you've seen uh, this in, in all of your efforts with, with helping organizations through change. The more people feel like they have input, that they have ownership, that they have skin in the game, so to speak, the, the more on board they get with the change, the less resistant they are to it, right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that what you're talking about is how do you engage people? And when when you do what you and I are talking about here and engage the front line, because they see the reality of what has to be done. They have to do all of the hard lifting to make it happen. And so the minute you capture their hearts and minds because you're engaging them, then you get their very best, which is why this is a people process. There is a risk that leaders think they're the ones that need to have all the answers. What leaders really need to learn how to do is activate and engage their people and then figure out how to clear the path so they can they can be the ones that implement the change. And it, it just makes all the difference in the world. And I, I should pause. I appreciate you saying about the book design. For everybody that's thinking about writing a book, I should just make this one free caveat. We used an artist to do our book and it made all the difference in the world. It was really pretty special to work with an artist that did all the artwork and the book layout, a guy named uh, Lauren Ball out of California. And so I just a shout out to him and an acknowledgement that sometimes you, you just use it in somebody that uses like book design, but we used an artist and it, it really, I think, helped make the, the pictures, the images and the design of the book pop. So gratitude to him for his great work. Oh, outstanding. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, again, that goes into getting the right people uh, on board with the project, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so love it. Um, but yeah, and, and well, you know, and, and so uh, being a military guy, being a military history guy, I always go back to to the, the basics and, and Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu had a passage that says, Sun Tzu says, as a general rule, never attack a heavily fortified position. And so what Curtis and I are talking about here is basically like with change, you can very easily go down as the decision maker and say, hey, this is the change we're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. Do it. And that's a heavily fortified position for all the reasons we've already talked about, about how people are invested in it. And and you're going to get a lot of resistance. Right. But the, the counter to that is is flanking. Right. Is is. Uh, and, and some people call it manipulation, not in the negative sense of it, but in, in the, the literal def- definition of the word, you get people bought in. You, you can come down and say, hey, you know, this is what we need to do. What are your ideas? They're probably going to come to the same conclusions of what you need to do for change. But now it's their idea instead of you telling them what needs to be done. And it's a lot less of resistance and you get a lot better results. And a lot of times they're going to see an angle because they're doing the job. They're doing the task that maybe you haven't done because you're in the C-suite. You haven't done for 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. They're going to see an angle that you didn't know about, and they're going to come up with a better idea. So the change is not only going to be easier, less resistance to implement, but it's probably going to be a better change initiative than what you even drew up on paper, right? That is really, really well said. And there's there's a couple of reasons behind this. You know, if you think about people in the C-suite, they're upstairs thinking about strategy. They're looking at market and economic factors. 
Maybe they're looking at legislation that will impact the business, competitive forces. And they spend all this time and energy, months, working on a change. And if they just show up at a town hall and make a proclamation from the C-suite of, we will make this change now, all the employees have missed the three months of intellectual debate around why. And so the change can feel threatening, but as leaders, if we can focus on, um, as you said, flanking them and, 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 and informing them and helping them feel um, the clarity around, okay, what is going on in the marketplace? Why do we need to make this change? Then, then what you get, manipulation or informed consent or influence or the ability to communicate, whichever language you want to use. I like to talk about it as let's paint a vision of where we need to go and why we need to be there. And then let's build a bridge back from that point in time collectively. And when leaders can do that and then stay engaged to help clear the path and make make it so that it's okay to try new things and discover a better way forward, then you get that kind of transformation in the way you lead change rather than just decree change. And, and listeners, again, I'm going to keep singing the praises of this book because you're going to find this a little hard to believe, but in all honesty, uh, we haven't even gotten out of chapter two yet in our discussion, and there's uh, nine chapters in total, so we haven't even scratched the surface. There's a lot uh, of meat left on this bone. Um, but but I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit of a philosophical question. Maybe you've got a data-driven answer. I'm, I'm not sure. But we've, we've lived in a very change-centric world for a lot of years now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like most organizations have only gotten modestly better at change management, change implementation. Yeah. Why do you feel that is? And do you see... Do you see a future where change becomes a little less scary and a little easier for organizations to implement? Well, I'll, I'll go through that in reverse order. I mean, that's the whole reason we're, we're just engaged in this work with the book and with the, the training and, and leadership development Franklin Covey does. Is we want that to be better in the future. So I think there are, there, there are a couple of reasons why we're in that circumstance. First of all, um, there's there's not a lot of specific development around change capability in organizations. It's becoming a little more common. But in today's world, we often take individual contributors. They perform well. We promote them to be leaders. You know, take software, for example. Let's say somebody's a software developer and then they're leading a team. I don't know that it was ever their aspiration to lead nor that there's a natural curiosity around leadership. What there was was individual proficiency and competency, and now they're in a leadership role. And that happens in lots of industries. So what what happens is you end up with professional training in a specialty area, and then you end up leading without any training to help you be proficient at it. And, And change is messy. It feels threatening. People don't like to talk about it because they may not know the answers. And so there's there is this just built into the system problem with it. Um, The other problem that I think is really prominent is we don't label things as change. We might say, oh, we're going through an acquisition. We're going to have a bunch of new colleagues. Or 
you know what, we've got to implement SAP, or right now we're going to change our organizational structure. They might have used the word change, or they might have said, hey, we're restructuring, and you'll now report to this person. But so often, the word change isn't connected to the initiative. But if leaders will pause for a minute and realize most initiatives they're trying to lead require change, then we give ourselves permission to talk about it as a, as a thing and to spend time and energy on it, which then should lead us to, oh, we need to help our people and our leaders, to my first point. And so our, our aspiration, our hope, our investment of time, energy, and resource at Franklin Covey is to push this into the mainstream where organizations and leaders really start to develop change skills and over time change competency. And as that competency emerges, then I think the answer to your question would be different. The answer will be, yeah, it's going to be better in the future because we've developed a competency in our organization, in me as a leader, in you as an employee to handle this and thrive from it so that we see the opportunity rather than just focus on the uncertainty. Yes. I love that. I love that answer. Cause that to me is, and, and I'm sure you probably come up um, uh, against this a little bit uh, with your time in, in Japan. If you've had a chance to really uh, study the, the Toyota production system, what kind yep. of turned into lean here in the U S what, what you just said is, is the root of that, right? In the U S we really focused on the inventory management and that sort of thing. But at the very root of that was Kaizen continuous change for good. Yep. And and like you said that 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 what made that so special is what you just said. Change is the culture. And and I for me when I look at it, I think that is the one thing that that makes most US based organizations with change kind of freeze is they they feel change has to be something to be called change has to be something earth-shattering, monumental, <laughs> groundbreaking right. and it just and, and like something as easy as, well, maybe if we move the paper clips to the left side of the desk, so it's easier to get to them and we take a fraction of seconds off of the workday, that's change. Mm. And, and, you know, if you get used to making changes, change becomes, like you just said, it's, it's the culture. It becomes more acceptable. And it's like, why aren't we making changes on the daily basis instead of why are we changing? Right. Yeah. So yep. and when we can it. make that transformation, it, it leads to a faster journey through the change model, a lower cost, a bigger return, and so much more innovation that helps organizations thrive. So it's, it's that's the goal. That's where we want to go. We want to help people and leaders get to that point. Exactly. Well, Curtis, man, time has just absolutely flown by here. We're, we're sitting a little over 40 minutes at this point. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground, but like I said, we left a lot of meat on the bone for the book here, uh, encouraging people to go get a copy of that. Um, but is there anything that we didn't cover in our conversation that you want to leave listeners with before we get out of here? Yeah, just one point that I'd like to highlight. And that is um, so often when we talk about change, really accusatory language seems to show up you're not doing this, why are you? And it's all you, 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 and it seems to be quite accusatory. One of the great benefits that comes from learning a framework like the change model or, or even learning the story in the parable is that we're, we're collectively, 
as a team or a leadership group exposed to a framework and a language that allows us to talk about the change in a non-threatening, non-accusatory way. And it's just remarkable to me how much that opens up the dialogue and gives everyone permission to talk about it quite a bit more actively and, and not feel threatened, but to collaborate together and find a way through it. So it's, it's just really a benefit that emerges every time more and more people learn the change model is they start to have a new language to talk about the elephant in the room in a way that is quite a bit more approachable. So hopefully everybody will discover that as they, they read through the book and, and feel like there's just some tremendous value for them in their personal journey as they deal with change at work and in their personal life. Mm. I, I, that, that is great advice to, to, to leave with. Um, so listeners are sold. They, they want to go find a copy of the book. They want to find out more about you. They want to find out more about your co-authors. Um, they want to find out more about what you all do and how uh, you can potentially help them and their organizations. What's a great place for them to do that, Curtis? Yeah, there are a few places they can do that. Of course, you know, getting getting their hands on the book, you can get the Kindle, the the printed book, or the audio book, all on Amazon or any of the big big uh, book retailers. So that part's pretty straightforward if you just go and look for it. Um, if you want to connect with me, which I'd certainly welcome, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's just Curtis Bateman, or if you look for the book, you'll you'll see it. So it's just Curtis Bateman and. Uh, that'll get you right to me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with anybody that's got thoughts or questions or would, would love to engage in some dialogue around it. My co-authors are there. In the back of the book, um, you'll find that we've put a small little bio and every one of us has our social media connection points, Instagram, LinkedIn, etc. So Andy, Marche, and Christy are also all on LinkedIn. If you get to one of us, you'll find, you'll find all of us. We, we cross promote and, and connect with each other. And, um, and then of course, if you go to franklincovey.com and you go to our speakers pages or to the book page, there's two ways into that. If you just look at our main menu and go into the books or into the speakers section, You'll find me or the book, and there's information there with our bios and some videos. So those are probably the the best places to go. Either get the book, hit us on LinkedIn, or go to franklincovey.com, and you'll you'll easily find us. Fantastic. And uh, listeners, as always, I'll have uh, links to to those in the uh, show notes there. So they're just a uh, click of a link away for you. Uh, Again, make sure that you grab a copy of this book. Uh, you know, I, I have a few books that I refer to as kind of my, my quick reference, uh, books here. And, and I would add this to that collection, you know, I'm sure it's up to maybe a dozen or so at this point with how many, uh, uh, episodes we've got here, but this is definitely one. I mean, like I said, with the change model, uh, with the information that's here, I think you want this book, uh, nearby, especially when you're undertaking any, any change initiatives in your organization, the work that they've done in this book has been, uh, fantastic. And, uh, you want it nearby so you can, you can execute your next change initiative, uh, much easier with, with a lot less pain. Uh, and on that note, I just want to say, Curtis, again, thank you for being a, a fantastic guest. Uh, thank you, uh, Marche, Andy, uh, Christy, and, uh, everybody else involved with, uh, Franklin Covey and the book. But I want to thank you specifically for being a fantastic guest. 
sharing your knowledge and uh, information with us uh, and, and my listeners on this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. It has been an honor to have this conversation with you today. Thank you. Appreciate being on your show, Earl. Been a lot of fun. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.